Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Today, we're discussing ultra-processed foods and beverages and their impact on public health. Every year, more than 8 million deaths are associated with poor diet, and this has been rising dramatically over the decades as industrialized foods are changing the way people eat, resulting in diets that are much less healthy. I'm so pleased today to, to help answer this question and dive into this issue to be joined by my Vital Strategies colleagues and public health experts, Trish Cotter, global lead of our food policy program, and Taina Costa, communication program manager from Brazil. Trish, maybe you can help set the stage for why poor diets is such a big issue and an issue of ultra-processed foods. I know that the recent World Health Organization report entitled Invisible Numbers, the True Extent of Non-Communicable Diseases and What to Do About Them stated that unhealthy diets are responsible for 8 million deaths a year and 19% of all deaths from non-communicable diseases like cancer or diabetes. How have our diets changed over time and why have they become so unhealthy and such a big driver of, of chronic disease? Thanks, Steve. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So uh, over the last 40 to 50 years, we've seen a dramatic nutrition transition everywhere, actually, where we've seen a rapid shift from traditional healthy diets to diets that are high in ultra-processed foods and sugary drinks. And at the same time over this period, we've seen obesity rates increase in every country without exception over that period of time. So it's, it's really no wonder that WHO is reporting that unhealthy deaths, unhealthy diets are responsible for 8 million deaths a year. We, we've been so engulfed by so many food choices and um, food marketing that it's really it's hard to imagine that the food environment was once something quite different. In, in, in our grandparents' time, foods were predominantly fresh and whole foods. Uh, but now, um, particularly in countries you know, like the US and, and Australia, where I am, about 50% of the calories that are consumed are from these products that we call ultra-processed foods and beverages. And um, their, their consumption is increasing rapidly in, in many countries. So. When we talk about ultra-processed foods, we're, we're really we're talking about foods that you can't make in your home kitchen, um, the, and you know there's quite a bit of debate about whether they're actually foods at all. They're industrialized products, really. They've they've gone through many manufacturing steps, which alter the natural state of of the food. And I like to say they're quite literally torn apart and put back together with a, the addition of a cocktail of preservatives emulsifiers, flavours and colours. 
the result, uh, you know, those packaged foods that we see lining the supermarket walls, um, they're brightly coloured, they're ready to eat, they're hyper palatable um, and they're convenient. They, many of them are really tasty because they've got this bliss point of fat, salt and sugar uh, in them. Uh, but really, they're foods that are really quite un unhealthy and um, they can have a long lasting effect on, on your health with, you know, increasing risk of diabetes and heart disease and some cancers. So what, one of the difficult things is, is that all of a sudden we're waking up to this completely different food environment from, from what our bodies are, um, are made to process. And when we consider that, you know, in countries like the US or the UK or even Australia, the average shopping basket um, is 50% ultra-processed food, I think we have a real challenge on our hands. And it's, you know, it's not hard to imagine that behind this is a, a global food and beverage industry whose major you know, responsibility is to its 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 profits, not, not our health. I, I think that, you know, that, situation you're describing would resonate with anybody's personal experience. I know that my kids clamor for things that are brightly colored, you know, bright orange and crispy and tasty. And, um, you know, we, we see all kinds of things in their supermarket aisles and in our carts that are easy to create, uh, easy to make. And, um, but it's, it's so important what you said that we talk, you know, about what's driving this. And on this podcast, we've talked a lot about how corporations that produce harmful products can drive poor health for millions or billions. And, you know, sometimes we call this the commercial determinants of health. So and how do these commercial determinants, these industries show up in the food space? They show up because, you know, their major responsibility is for profit, not for health. And so that's what drives pretty much every decision that they make. It's not whether the product that they're producing is healthy or not. And it's clear that many of the products that they're producing are unhealthy. And a diet that consists of, you know, a significant amount of these is a really unhealthy diet. And so these companies have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. There's sort of a proliferation of products and what thousands of individual products that are unhealthy um, that we think are, have been trained to think are tasty and convenient and that we probably can't live without them. But and, and while there are thousands of individual products out there that are potentially harmful, you know, they, those products can't be targeted. So that so, but once we start to collect the concept of ultra-processed foods as a harmful category of foods, governments can find ways of, to, to regulate them. And once they do that, these large corporations will really, you know, flex their muscles. And having them flex, I mean, we see how industries interfere or influence or divert or deter health policies all the time, and not just in the food space and tobacco and alcohol. You know, what would you say about their impact in this space? Well, industry will always try to engage in policy solutions that suit them. Um, and once government, governments allow them to do that, the end product is usually an ineffective or weakened policy at best. So while well, industry is really part of the problem because they're producing the foods that are unhealthy, 
And, and while they need to be part of implementing the solutions to that, they can't be part of the policy making. Policy making is for public health experts, not for profit makers. So um, the decision making can't be muddied by those commercial interests. It has to be based on what's good for the population. And when a major player doesn't have that in their mindset, it's you know it's a recipe for disaster if they're involved in the policy making process. Thank you for that. And Taina, um, you know, Trish described how this, you know, these these forces have been proliferating around the world. And I'm really curious to dig into your experiences um, working on this in Brazil and in uh, the Latin American region. Can you describe a little bit about um, ultra processed foods and beverages and the influence of, of industry in, in your country and your region? Sure, Steve. Um, first of all, thank you. I think it's a pleasure to be here talking about um, such a relevant subject. And um, regarding your question, I guess a good way to start this conversation is to talk about the Brazilian Dietary Guidelines. Um, its latest version is from 2014, and it gives a novel approach on the nutrition. Um, this document is considered a reference if we compare to other um, similar documents across the world. And it reinforces the, the importance of making natural and minimally processed foods the building blocks of a healthy diet. At the same time, it recommends the, uh, to limit the use of processed foods and to avoid ultra-processed food um, altogether, so as much as possible. Um, and this document also uses the Brazilian culinary traditions, which is very rich. Um, we have grains, cereals, vegetables. Um, so it is a combination of our um, cuisine tradition, but also um, this reference in avoiding processed and ultra-processed food. But even with um, those efforts on having an official document recommending um, a healthy diet, we have faced a rapid transition from um, the traditional diet in Brazil to diets high in ultra-processed foods. So um, the scenario that you and Trish described in the beginning of this conversation is not different in Brazil. Um, we have faced increasing um, tax uh, um, rates on um, non-communicable diseases, um, and our traditional and homemade meals are being so replaced by ready-to-eat options such as package items or frozen uh, food and fast food. And just to give you a sense of the numbers, so um, nowadays um, the obesity rates have increased from 11.8% of the population in 2006 to nearly 20% in 2018. And last year, um, this rate was on the uh, around 22 to 23% of the population. And this, um, of course, leads to a raise on diabetes, heart diseases, um, and it's burdening the healthcare system in Brazil. And the industry have played um, uh, an important role 
on this um, scenario, on this situation. So um, they, the multinational food um, industries grew in Brazil over the last century. Um, and their strategy was to purchase some um, national companies, um, which for them, for the industry, reduced some implementation costs. Also, it helped to diversify the production. At the same time, it eliminated part of the competition. So um, the number of merchant acquisition um, in the sector exploded in the 1990s um, when we in Brazil were facing um an economic crisis. So the government was trying to attract some foreign investment. Um, and uh, it's important to mention that those large companies, they have more advantage when uh, it comes to negotiate because uh, the big supermarkets, they need their products. Uh, they need the products for the most well-known brands. Um, and one important thing to mention is that um, in the, the 80s, 1980s, eating ultra-processed foods was a symbol of status and wealth in Brazil. And in the next decade, so in the beginning of the uh, 90s, the economy in Brazil began to, to stabilize and it contributed to increase the population's income. And so the consumers had more money in their pockets and the price of ultra-processed foods began to fall. And the result was this increase in the ultra-processed um, products consumption. I think that's fascinating you bring up uh, I mean, it's disturbing, first of all, to hear the history of, you know, what's happening in Brazil and elsewhere, but it's also fascinating to hear about the perceptions of food and, you know, this isn't ha happening in a vacuum. I know that when I go, you know, on the on the floor in my office, down the hallway is a, is a, a soda machine that says, balance what you eat, drink, and do. And so there's clearly this <laughs> perspective that, uh, around individual behaviors and choices. Trish, what do you say to the individual behavior argument that this, you know, people should, you know, make better choices? Well, we're told that we should be make, making better choices, but really we have to avert the blame that's placed on the individual in this situation. You know, we, we think we make, when we walk into a supermarket or past a vending machine, we think we're making decisions about our purchasing, but we, in reality, there's someone else pulling the strings. You know, there's, you know, many times there's a large food and be beverage um, organisation that's really already made the decision for us by setting prices, designing food products that are easy and convenient, that look tasty and nutritious, and even tell us that we should choose them because they're natural and, you know, <laughs> which may be debatable. But, you know, we've been trained as, as consumers worldwide. Our, our, our palates and our brains have been changed trained to believe that some of these foods are worth craving and that they're desirable and when in fact they're unhealthy and um, we've had the wool pulled over our eyes by this massive industry that's bent on profits and um, continues to produce you know unhealthy food and lay the blame on the individual for their increase in weight when they're producing foods that are um likely to facilitate that so we're in a really difficult position <laughs> as consumers so and so you know you've established this you know that these ultra processed foods and beverages are responsible for these healthy diets and accompanied by these you know norm changing um markets and and marketing 
uh, what should we do about it? Like, what what's the public health solution? What policies have been effective to you know empower and educate consumers about about ultra processed foods? One of the key ways to in, to to reduce consumption of ultra processed foods is to reduce consumption of sugary drinks. Um, and we know uh, globally that taxes on sugary drinks are an effective way of reducing consumption of sugary drinks because sugary drinks are in fact ultra processed beverages uh, high in sugar. The other the other um, approach that is um, evidence is showing is really combating. Um, obesity and, and and empowering nutrition uh, for consumers is clear front of package labeling uh, that can identify the unhealthiest foods. Now there are lots of different um, front of package labeling systems around the world, but we're say, seeing from that evidence from Chile who introduced warning labels on the front of their food packaging in, in 2016 that they've seen significant reductions in, in the consumption of unhealthy food and beverages. Um, so those products that are carrying warning labels are being consumed less. And one of the beautiful things about the... Um, the regulations in Chile is that they connected the front of package warning labels um, to food policy uh, in schools. So children can't take um, products to school or be served products at school that carry those warning labels that are on those ultra processed foods. So it's having a great effect on their um, on their health in, in Chile. Um, another a number of other countries are implementing or have proposed to implement uh, front of package uh, labeling. Um, but the challenge is around whether the labeling that's introduced is free from conflict of interest from industry interference and um, is likely to be effective in that population. And it seems that warning labels are are likely to be more effective than other systems like traffic lights or health star like ratings or Nutri-Score even that are in, in some countries. Um, so these, these efforts um, are really around introducing policies that help us reduce our consumption of ultra-processed foods, and most of those are high in fat, salt and sugar. So that's that's where, where those labels um, come into into four and and one of the things that vital strategies is has proposed is that we in in addition to a warning about a product that might be high in fat or salt or um, sugar is to add a warning about the product being ultra processed um, and I think that would be really interesting to to enable uh, the public to see just how many potentially unhealthy products are line those supermarket shelves. Um, it's it's that and you know increasing people's knowledge of these products I think is really important. Um, we've seen you know huge successes in tobacco control where we've informed the public about the dangers of of consuming tobacco. It's an approach that we really need to do in um, in food is we, we need to tell the truth about the products that they're consuming, just like we did in tobacco. Um, and the truth is these products can lead to some serious health consequences. And it was, you know, has been done very successfully in tobacco. Um, it took a long time. Um, we're at the beginning of that process now in, in, in food policy, but 
you know, there's some policy wins that are really pushing this agenda along. So, um, but we do, as a global public health um, community, we're responsible for this, I think. And um, it's, it's, it's all ahead of us. That's great to hear. I mean, and I, I know, as you said, it's part of the insidious of this is that consumers want to know. They really want to protect their families and themselves against harmful, uh, you know, harmful foods or processed foods or unnatural foods. And it sounds like labels are, it's the number of systems and labels are a strong way forward. I know that um, Vital Strategies has designed and tested numerous different, different labels. Can you just paint a picture quickly of what if if you had your druthers, what would somebody see? What would they literally be looking at on the front of an unhealthy food product? What might that label look like? It, it, it would it would literally say have a warning label that said warning this product is ultra processed and it's high in fat or salt or sugar or all three of them. Because it's not just the fact that these products are high in fat, salt, and sugar that makes them unhealthy. It's the industrial processing um, and the fact that these whole foods have been pulled apart beyond recognition, put back to make something else. (laughs) Um, And it's that processing that we're beginning to understand is the unhealthy component of these products. So you know, in those 10 seconds or less usually that, you know, consumers have to select a product from a supermarket shelf and put it in their shopping basket, there really needs to be a quick front of package um, alert to a product that's unhealthy because there's, there's, there's no time to decipher the fine print on the back of a product that, that tells you about what the individual ingredients are for a start. And if there's more than five, it's usually an ultra-processed product. If there are if there are numbers in that list, it's definitely under an ultra-processed product. But to try and work out, you know, well, how many, what does 15 grams of sugar mean in a product? Is that good or is it bad? It takes longer than 10 seconds. So a quick front of package um alert um, would go a long way to um, to supporting individual consumers' decision-making at the point of purchase or selection. There's clearly a lot to do, like educating individual consumers, but, you know, on a mass level, and creating this momentum for larger policy change. Um, Taina, I know you've been working in just this area to help groups, you know, educate consumers, inform them about ultra-processed food, but also galvanizing support for these kinds of smart labeling policies. Can you share more about this work, um, you know, getting momentum towards smart labels and taxes? Yes. So um, to answer this question, I guess I'll tell you two short stories, one about Brazil and one about Argentina. So those countries have examples of successful mass media campaigns to inform the public about the harms of ultra-processed foods, and also um, to mobilize coalitions to advocate for front-of-package warning labels. I'll start talking about Brazil, that is my country. So in 2014, um, our health surveillance agency that is called Anvisa, 
convened some stakeholders to um, be part of a working group to develop a new food labeling system. And this idea came from as a response from um, a study, a research that was conducted by the Brazilian Institute of Consumer Rights, EDEC, that is our local partner. Um, and this um, study, they highlighted the consumers' needs for clear information um, that would help them to make healthier food choices. Um, then um, Anvisa, um, after having access to this research, they um, had a challenging task to navigate between um, different stakeholders in this um, working group because they convened public health officials, civil society, but also the industry. So the food and beverage industry was part of this discussion. And those different groups had um, different views of what would be a system that um, was needed to put in place to inform and educate um, the consumers about ultra-processed food. So um, this conversation had uh, some progress and then this group um, recommended two different front of package models. And just for you to have like a visual reference of what those two models would look like, one model um, was like um, black triangles, alerting about products that were high in salt, sugar, and fat. And the other model was um, uh, with a magnifying glass um, with the same alerts. Um, but the first one, the first model, the triangle one, was proven by research to be more effective, to be more, um, to grab, to be more, uh, grab more attention of the, the, the people um, when they are um, at the supermarket, for example. So the, the, the third sector and the civil society organization were in favor of this triangle model. And the second one was the one recommended by the industry that was kind of a weaker model. Um, so in this process, they back the, the Institute of Consumer Rights in collaboration with some partners from the Brazilian Alliance for Healthy Food and Adequate Food. Um, the, the, that is a coalition um, of the civil society. Um, they led a series of communication campaigns to promote um, the effective front of package label, which was the Black tri Triangle model. And Vital Strategies was there helping them um, to develop those successful communication campaigns. And um, the, the greatest example of those campaigns was the one who took place in 2019 when Anvisa launched a online public consultation to ask people about their opinion on those two front of package labeling models, um, the triangle and the magnifying glass. So partners conducted a targeted digital media campaign that resulted in an unprecedented volume of responses in this digital um, online public consultation. And most of the people who answered the public consultation was in favor of the triangle model that was proven to be the most effective one. After this public consultation, um, one year, almost one year later, in October 2020, Anvisa finally approved a model for the front of package labels in Brazil. Um, but due to industry pressure, the model approved was the magnifying glass one. Um, anyway, it was considered a victory um, to, after this long process, to approve this regulation. 
And the approval was in 2020, but the implementation is happening now. So uh, it's a coincidence because the start date was in October 9. Um, we were a, a bit concerned about having um, any industry requests to delay the implementation, but it didn't happen. So in the upcoming months, we will see more and more products with these new labels in the supermarkets here in Brazil, which is a great victory. And talking about Argentina, so um, for the past five years, the civil society organizations there fought for um, package um, policies, uh, front of package labeling policies, and their project, uh, uh, it's important to mention here, that was a very complete. It included front of package warning labels, but also marketing restrictions and the removal of unhealthy foods and drinks from a school's environment. And their law is known uh, as health uh, food promotion law. So, likely in Brazil, our partners in Argentina pushed for the view and employed mass media and advocacy campaigns, and it generated media articles, social media posts and engagement, meeting with policymakers, and also digital and printed media ads. And over the last year, the coalition of the civil society organization, they increased their advocacy efforts to pressure their chamber of deputies to approve the bill. And they also faced aggressive industry opposition there. Um, but the, the health uh, food promotion law was adopted in November 2021. And this is one of the strongest health uh, food policy um, in the world. Uh, the implementation in Argentina began in August 2021 to 2022, and they are also in a process of implementation. So large food and beverage companies um, started in 2022, but um, small and medium-sized business will have more time to start implementing. Um, they will start in February 2023. And uh, they also will have um, uh, warnings on those products with um, excess of critical nutrients um, and advertising. Um, and th those um, um, products with excess of critical nutrients will not be able to be sold uh, in schools, sold and advertised in schools. And we can see that in both countries, um, there will be a transition period until all the products in the supermarket have the labeling properly implemented. Um, and we will be monitoring the process, the progress um, in, the, in both countries to, to evaluate the efficacy um, in the coming years. And we expect that other countries uh, will now look at Argentina as an example of a strong and comprehensive healthy food policy. Um, and this will improve not only um, the, the health environment in Argentina, but also across the region and even across the world. That's, I love hearing these stories from the trenches and, uh, and the back and forth and, and what it takes to win. I mean, it's, it's, it really is incredible that, you know, what seems like such a sensible and straightforward policy that consumers want, like labels on unhealthy foods and beverage takes such uh, effort um, to get across. And it, it also amazes me that, you know, some of these companies, they can change their packaging in a heartbeat to make, you know, like Christmas themed, you know, potato chips, but somehow it seems that, that they'll claim it takes them two or three years to put these modest warning labels on their product. Um, but Trish, I, I gather that these aren't unique experiences that Taina is talking about. Is there momentum adopting these kinds of labels and, and policies around the world? Yes, there is, Steve. And it's 
governments are increasingly looking at ways to, you know, address the obesity um, issues that they have and the the, the pressure that they're experiencing uh, in, in their health system uh, as a result of that. So Argentina and Brazil are growing part of a growing list of, of countries that include Chile, Mexico, Peru, Uruguay, and, and Canada. Um, to introduce warning labels on 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 pack unhealthy food packaged goods, um, other countries have um, less clear warning labels. I would suggest, well, not warning labels, but um, trying to sort of ind- indicate more healthy products. Uh, the research seems to suggest that warning labels are likely to enable a reduction in the consumption of unhealthy foods. But I just wanted to go back to one of the things that um, that that Tina said around, um, and to really highlight the role of civil society in in the important role of civil society organisations in in representing the public to policymakers around the introduction of these important policies. Um, in many countries, this is a huge and committed effort, and in, in Brazil, in particular, it was a as we know, it was took over over six years to get the policy through, and six years of dedication from civil society organisations, which resulted in something a record in a number of um, responses to and visas. Um, a public consultation around the, the the warning label to be introduced there. So, the efforts pay off. There's evidence from Argentina and Brazil. Certainly, um, there's been a junk food law passed in Colombia, and a lot of that is you know effort has been because of the continual um, push from civil society organisations. And um, we we as public health um, advocates, you know. Are strongly involved in that process. So it's something that just doesn't happen. You know, if we can't rely on governments to introduce good policies because we know that, you know, that that the food industry will be the first organization in there to try and either water them down or to have them not exist or to make them not mandatory. Um, so um civil the role of civil society organizations in food policy is crucial. Thank you for I love that you brought that up. I know another constant theme that we've talked about on the power hour is what it takes to change policies. And we we work with so many health professionals, doctors, nurses, public health folks, and often they don't realize that they're about to get a crash course in public relations or lobbying or digital organizing. You know, they often say things like, well, I didn't go to school for this, but they're brave enough to take up the mantle because that's what it will take. It takes more than knowing what the right thing to do is. It, It takes convincing policymakers to to action and that that involves you know being able to put together coalitions and all all of the tools of policymaking i have a few more questions um more maybe on an individual level Taina, i was curious on on a personal level you've been working in this space for a few years has this changed your outlook on food do you experience the grocery store differently than you did a few years ago Certainly, Steve. Like um, 
And my partner usually says that uh, it's kind of boring to go to the supermarket with me because I want to read all labels and um, to know and to identify if what I am buying is ultra processed or not. So um, I've been learning a lot about the subject and um, it certainly led me to make um, healthier choices and um, to think about what I am eating and what I'm buying um, and um, yeah, so and it's also influencing like my family, for example, my parents, when I visit them, um, I try to warn them about oh, this product is not like healthy, you should like make another choice when you go to the supermarket. And even my friends, so I ended up by being a good influence to them, I would say. I love that. And Trish, what do you say? I mean, we're fighting for smart health warning labels in countries around the planet. What do you suggest or what do you do in the meantime? Like what, what should parents do? And how, how do people protect themselves and their loved ones and their family um, from, the, from these unhealthy foods? Do you have a suggestion? Um, a, a really practical suggestion, which I try and force my family to implement as well <laughs> is to look at the if, if if there's not um if there's no information on the front of the package that's meaningful um and which in Australia we have a health star rating system which is not meaningful I, I don't think um but to look at the back of the package uh and look at the ingredients list and if the ingredients list has things in it that you don't have in your home pantry, it's most likely a, an ultra-processed product. If it has numbers, it'll be an ultra-processed product. So that's one of the easiest ways I find to identify something that's um, that's ultra-processed uh, in, in the absence of a helpful warning label like we have in now in Brazil and Argentina and Mexico and you know many many other countries. So um, so as uh, in the US, that's that's what I would be doing. I'd be looking at the ingredients list, and I think every product is required to have an in, in, ingredients list, um, and if it's products that you don't have in your home kitchen, it's most likely it's an ultra-processed food. I appreciate that. As a New Yorker, someone who lives in the United States, I appreciate that advice a lot. And while I and others need to be fighting for these kinds of you know policies that will protect millions of people at a time, I love that practical advice as this what to tell people and for myself to look for. I want to thank you both so much for bringing a lot more clarity and light to this issue. Um, and it certainly left me with a lot more knowledge um, and inspiration, especially to see what's been happening in Chile and uh, you know Argentina and Brazil, um, and to believe and to think about how it could help elsewhere. I know that for further reading about front of package labels, Vital Strategies, and our research partner, the University of North Carolina's Global Food Research Program, has created a guidebook called What's in Our Food? A Guide to Introducing Effective Front of Package Nutrient Labels um, that could assist uh, um, advocates or countries who want to take up this cost-effective strategy, and it can be found on the Vital Strategies website. Uh, vitalstrategies.org slash program slash food policy. And to each of you listening, thank you for tuning in to listen and learn and join us on our journey to reimagine a world where everyone everywhere is protected by a strong and equitable public health system. Many thanks to our producer, Nana Sase, our digital lead, Dane Svensson, and Rachel Burns, 
and the Vital Strategies Food Policy Program for their support in putting together today's Power Hour. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Twitter at VitalStrat. And if you're listening on podcast, please hit that subscribe button. This is Steve Hamill signing off for the Public Health Power Hour. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at VitalStrat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.